Hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of Lenishex Radio. I'm uh, Yoni and I'm joined today by uh, Lori. Hello, hello. By Robbie. Hey, hey. And today we're going to talk about the wave of protests uh, sweeping uh, Iran, which have been going on for uh, over a month already. Our uh, guest today, well, uh, won't be here in person because uh, we asked them a bunch of questions and uh, for obvious reasons they prefer to answer in writing. So we will go over um, their answers. They are um, a friend of the show and a dissident uh, from uh, Iran uh, with a wide range of knowledge concerning the overall situation and the status of the protests. Please bear in mind that this is a constantly evolving situation. So by the moment this episode uh, is out, things might have changed drastically. But uh, even so, we're touching about more uh, historical circumstances and uh, some of the things concerning the bigger picture. So we hope it will stay relevant. Yeah, so just to reiterate, we do plan to have a more engaged feminist perspective uh, in a future episode, but for today, for this short episode, the perspective that our guest brings is more of a historical, broad stroke, broader context information that's very useful to understand what are the conditions that generated the current protest rather than what is happening at the moment on the streets, as it were. Note also that the episode is pretty heavy on uh, uh, name-dropping uh, of, of people and places. We do hope that you find uh, the episode engaging uh, despite or because of the density of information, depending on how each of you likes to consume their podcasts. Listen to them. Sloths. Children of the night. What music they Before we discuss the protests currently unfolding in Iran, let's talk a bit about how things look right now on a social scale and about the wave of protests sweeping the country ever since the second half of the 2010s, like the 2017-2018 street protests, the later wave of general strikes, the violently repressed 2019-2020 protest, the manifestations during the corona crisis, etc. To find out more about this, we asked uh, our uh, friend what brought all of these protests, strikes, all of these people together. In a few large uh, strokes, they described what they have in common and what some of the points these protests agree and disagree on are. This is what uh, our guest had to answer. Quote, For delving into the discussion, I would like to describe how I see the Islamic Republic hereafter IR, as a political entity. IR is a militarized theocracy that emerged from almost one century after the Constitutional Revolution in 1905 to 1911, of encounter with Western, European and later American political, economic and social values. The conservative Muslims, led by Ayatollah Khomeini, stole the revolution of 1979 from other political activists, mainly leftists, and turned it into a 
quote-unquote reaction to the exaggerated efforts of the late Shah to westernize the country. The upcoming war with Iraq in 1980-1988 justified the conservative rulers militarizing the regime. In cooperation with the conservative mullahs, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, henceforth IRGC, transformed the regime gradually and positioned high-ranking generals to almost all the crucial political, economic and cultural appointments. During the 43 years after the revolution, they came up with a quote, truth regime, end quote, which is going opposite to what is happening in the world. They have their own interpretations of independence, Islam, people, jurisprudence, justice and truth. Their last achievement was the election of President Raisi in 2021, who won the election by the apparent interference of the IRGC. Let's get back to the question. This question may be answered from two perspectives. From the protesters' viewpoint, which I would call people throughout this text talk, as of the Green Movement in 2009, IR is not reformable because the supreme leader, Khamenei, acts as a tyrant and never steps back from any wrongly made decision. Therefore, their first and foremost want is that the regime should collapse. Their main argument lies in the Islamic Republic's incapability of governing the country based on justice and truth. The regime is not acting in accordance with what the people want. A militarized elite controls the country through terror and suppression. From the IR's point of view, what gathers all these protesters together is the fact that they are, quote, overthrower in Persian, barandaz, which means these who want to overthrow the, quote, revolution, a term used by the Islamic Republic authorities to describe their own regime. Therefore, they should be smashed with the iron fist. End of question. For the next question, we asked our friend, uh, how did the corona crisis, with all its interdictions, international penalties, and supply crisis uh, affecting Iran, worsen the things? And how were the people able to protest in spite of uh, pandemic-wide regulations? To quote, the way authorities in Iran managed the corona crisis, a catastrophe by the way, made people angry and aggressive because of massive loss. The regime postponed importing vaccines from the West because they wanted to make the country independent in terms of vaccines. IRGC was going to invent vaccines, however, they finally let the authorities import them. Unfortunately, it was too late for the people. People who are on the streets do not care about any corona restrictions. Last week, I managed to talk to a friend who is a protester. He told me that the masks helped the protesters not be recognized by the authorities. End quote. So for the next question, we asked our friend how the authorities responded up until the time of writing, and if so far they gave in to any demands, and if uh, our friend does see some hope from all these protests, or if by any chance there has been an increase of pressure, censorship, and arrest from the regime. Right? Now follows the answer, quote, As I explained before, in their truth regime, people are not rightful to protest. Therefore, theoretically, there is no hope that the regime will listen to what people call for. So far, the only reaction of the regime was suppressing the protesters by killing and arresting them. End quote. 
Moving on to the next question now, we asked if there has been any connection between the fall of the American-backed government in Afghanistan and the unrest in Iran. Also, we asked if Iran is facing a wave of Afghan refugees. To quote, I do not see any connection. Yes, since last year, Iran has been accepting several waves of Afghan refugees. End quote. As a follow-up to this first uh, round of questions, we asked our uh, guest if they could talk a bit about the cult of uh, Khomeini and how it was built, and if not, then why Khamenei was not able to stir up the same fascination both in Iran and uh, abroad. So as a brief note for our listener, Khomeini was the first autocratic leader of the Islamic Republic, Ruho La Khomeini, and he was followed by the somewhat similarly named for our uh, Western ears, Khamenei, Ali Khamenei. So these are different people. Khomeini died in 89 and uh, Khamenei has been in power since then. This is what our uh, guest answered. Khomeini came to be seen as a political activist in the 1960s when the Shah was trying to westernize the country by applying policies collectively known as the White Revolution. At this historic moment, Khomeini turned into the loud voice of the conservative class, consisting of those mullahs of the traditional madrasa, the ordinary Muslims who are worried about their religious and cultural values. Khomeini was arrested and put into exile in 1964. He spent his time mainly in Turkey and Iraq, the city of Najaf, which has the most flourishing seminary school, known as Khawazat al-Ilmiyat al-Najaf al-Ashraf, and for a short period in 1979, right before the revolution, in France. In these 15 years, the protests against the Pahlavi dynasty were mainly organized by two different approaches. The Muslim protesters comprised the three different groups. Conservative mullahs, a younger generation who had come up with a militarized ideology of Islam amalgamated with the communistic ideas called uh, Mujahedine Khalq, and liberal Muslims. The second group are the communist protesters, a party called Tude, which uh, has a younger militarized generation called Fadayane Khalq. The revolution of 1979 was a result of almost 15 years of efforts. The majority of Muslim conservatives respected Khomeini as a supreme religious authority known as Moshtahed, which one can acquire after years of traditional studies in the madrasa, in basically the university. It was not only conservative activists who were following in Khomeini, but the ordinary religious people of Iran, who were away from politics, had respect for Khomeini as a highly esteemed religious authority. It was maybe due to pragmatical purposes that as of 1970, Mojahids and liberal Muslims came closer to Khomeini and chose him as their leader. By the revolution in 1979, the Tude party and the fraction of Fadayan compromised with Khomeini. However, they were removed from power by the Khomeini attendees, who are mainly from the conservative groups. After the removal of all leftists, the conservative wing removed liberals and Mojahids. The latter was not that much easy. There was a civil war between Mojahids and conservative mullahs, who were by then dominant over all the country's institutions and organizations. 
They fled to Iraq and attacked Iran in 1988 with the support of Iraq's army. They were firmly smashed by the Iranian army and retreated to Iraq. They are still in a guerrilla war with the regime in Iran. Khomeini ruled over the country for 11 years. Despite his promise to the media and people before the revolution that he would stay away from the actual power and act as a consultant, he managed to fix his position as a country's first person, take it as a king clergyman, immediately after grabbing power. His personal charisma and religious authority were two main components of his power. In his time, IRGC was established under his own supervision and began fruitful cooperation with a younger generation of conservative mullahs. Among them, Khamenei was an outstanding member. Khamenei was not a religious authority because he had no time to complete his traditional education during the Shah's regime. After the revolution, he and several conservatives established a party called the Islamic Republic Party. In 1981, he won the election. In 1988, Khomeini died without any testimony. Khamenei was appointed to the supreme uh, leader by the effort of his friend, Hashemi Rafsanjani. These two played the drama in his election ceremony and finally he was elected. As soon as he was elected as the supreme leader, he started to come close to IRGC. The upcoming protests in 1999, 2008, 2018, 2019, and 2022 show that he saw this military force as his backbone. Throughout these years, he has put pressure on the seminary schools of Qom and Mashhad to accept his religious authority, has ordered to arrest those mullahs who have not accepted his religious supremacy, and has transformed the seminary schools into the centers of producing Islamic Republic fans. He lives in a world of metaphors and is used to recreate the early Islamic events. He mostly plays uh, Ali's role, since his name is also Ali. I'll break a bit here from uh, our uh, guest's answer to explain that uh, Ali was the cousin and companion of uh, the Prophet Muhammad. And he was also uh, the fourth uh, caliph, so one of the prophet's first uh, successors. Back to the answer now. In his speeches, he never says that, but compares occurring issues with the early Islamic ones. He wants power without responsibility, therefore he does not let anybody to criticize his decisions. The main problem lies in this fact. People revolted against the Shah because he inherited a non-elective position. He is now sitting on the same seat. I think his lack of charisma and also lack of religious status, as well as his uh, hypocritical governance by the military support of IRGC and his arrogance are the main reasons for his worldwide infamy. End quote. I would just briefly like to add a bit for uh, our listeners that it might be hard for us to understand um, Khomeini, the first autocratic role, to understand socially exactly what type of a dictator, what type of an authoritarian ruler he is, because, of course, he is very different from uh, many of the more extravagant dictators from the region, your Bashar al-Assad, Saddam Hussein's, Gaddafi's. He's also very 
different from the religious authorities uh, informing the Taliban or the Islamic State, although there are clearly some common points in their conservative agenda. And this might be a bit of a stretch, but it's good to think of him like something of a Lenin-like figure. So a figure who's also very involved in uh, the intellectual side of these polemics, who wrote a lot with and against other competing rivals, who also wanted to dethrone the Shah, but in a different manner. So this was very important, plus the actual argument of institutional authority. He also had to flee the country and was persecuted and then returned for the revolution. So you can see a lot of parallels. And of course, after taking power, this constant obsession with uh, organizations, methods, organisms, party divisions and stuff like that, it has a lot of parallels to how the actual leftist movements lost uh, power in the USSR after the end of the revolution as well. Of course, there are many differences, but maybe this might make a better idea of what type of uh, folk figure he was while at the same time being an authoritarian, ruthless ruler. Turning now to the present day, on the 16th of September, Masa Amini, an Iranian Kurdish woman, was killed by Iran's vice squad in Tehran for not wearing the hijab. So we asked our friend to first of all explain what the morality police is or so-called guidance patrol and if whether it's entirely state-sanctioned or rather functions as sort of a far-right militia without uh, any possibility of being held accountable. Now follows the answer. Quote, The Morality Police is an army force established in 2005 in cooperation between the police, which is, by the way, like other Iranian army forces led by the Supreme Leader and the Supreme Council of the Cultural Revolution, an institution which was established in 1985, to ensure the education and culture of Iran remains 100% Islamic. This force came to action after the election of Ahmadinejad, as president in 2005, when the far-right conservative came to power. It was in his time that the parliament approved the law under the name of Law and Chastity and Hijab. What the morality police is doing is actually authorized by the law. Of course, they are not supposed to kill people. What they should do is to arrest them, talk to them, and make them sign a commitment that they will observe the right hijab. However, The law is approved in a parliament whose representatives are not really elected by the people. To be a candidate for the parliamentary election in Iran, you should first be approved by the Guardian Council. The members of this council are directly elected by the Supreme Leader, as well as the head of the judiciary, who is also elected directly by the Supreme Leader. When your eligibility is approved by this council, which means you are theoretically in line with the regime, you can go to the election. In fact, The Supreme Leader is omnipresent and omnipotent in Iran." Moving on to the second part, we asked our friend to talk about a common propaganda claim made by the Iranian government, which essentially asserts that the hijab is not compulsory in Iran, but it represents a choice. And we asked our friend to clarify if there is space to maneuver in terms of the legality surrounding wearing of the hijab about various regional differences in expectations to wear it. So would Tehran be more conservative in this respect? 
uh, as opposed to places uh, like Esfahan or Shiraz. Now follows the answer, quote, After the revolution in 1979, there was no compulsory hijab in Iran. Only in 1984, after the conservative forces diminished other rivals, the law of compulsory hijab was included in the constitution. After that, all women must wear the hijab in public places, including all governmental offices, schools and universities, streets, etc. Tehran is not a conservative city. In the northern part of Tehran, which is Tehran's downtown, where rich kids live, people have more freedom in terms of the hijab. However, for entering into official places, they should have full hijab. But in the southern parts of Tehran, smaller cities of Iran and religious centers, hijab is still a compulsory issue. End quote. We followed up by asking how the hijab regulations differs in Iran as opposed to other places, since we often see cultural icons like Azam Ali wearing more colorful garments that reveal their hair. And specifically, we wanted to know how women oppose these regulations and how they oppose it based on how it is enforced in the day-to-day. To quote, in the following link, editor's note, which is included in our podcast description, end of note. How is hijab in Tehran updated two years ago? You can have an image of the spectrum of hijab among different social classes. Those with a more restricted hijab are either officials or people from conservative social class. Women in Iran try to cope with the hijab restrictions in different ways. One way is designing cloths with different styles. You may see some of them in the above link. Another way is not wearing hijab in their own cars while on the street. Some brave women may not have hijab in buses and metros. However, all these strategies belong to the time before the last round of protests. Now, you see that even high school girls put off their hijab at school. It is just an act of protest, but I think that after this round, nothing will be like before." End quote. Then we moved to the current situation and asked how it looked at that moment after a few weeks of constant protests. We asked how widespread the protests were outside of Tehran. Here's what our guest had to answer. It is now all over the country. People are protesting from Baluchistan in the southwest to Azerbaijan in the north and from Kurdistan in the west to Mashhad in the east. People from different social classes, women, men, high school students, university students, artists, professors and workers, all are together. Compared to the last protests, people are more unified this time and the regime is more brutal. End of the answer and find attached in the podcast description a map of Iran to better understand how these regions are connected. The next thing that we asked uh, was relating to people's access to the internet. We know that uh, at the beginning of the protest there was an internet blackout, uh, so we uh, asked about how people tried to work around this issue and how people tried to connect. Our guest's answer follows, quote, The internet is still shut down in the country. People are trying to connect the internet via VPNs. Some of them are actually successful. Since 2009, the regime filters and shuts down the internet during protests. This has made people cope with the situation and find different solutions. In fact, the internet is a battlefield that witnesses a war between people and the regime. End of quote. We asked 
specifically about the sanctions that the USA and Canada had announced, which are supposedly targeted towards the morality police. But we wanted to know how effective these sanctions can realistically be. As we know, it's usually these kinds of sanctions wind up hurting, you know, common folk way more than any kind of elites with power. And Iran is a prime example of ordinary people and population at large suffering greatly because of sanctions. Now follows the answer to quote. Sanctions could be considered long-term solutions. However, it may cost life of ordinary people. The US and Canada are going to weaken the country through the economic dissatisfaction of people. That simply means we put pressure on the people and make them protest against the regime. Also, sanctions give place to the sanction dealers. Sanction dealers are mostly members of the IRGC who trade illegally with countries like Russia and China to cover the country's needs. They mostly gain profits in these processes. End quote. Finally, in the wrap-up to the discussion, we asked how anyone from the outside could help. We've heard about people donating money to help various groups to organize, but uh, we question how safe it is to transfer money. Isn't there a risk of these funds being intercepted by the authorities? Our guest answered as follows, quote, To be honest, I do not know of any organization which may support the protest financially. In fact, what people want may not be fulfilled by donation. In the age of media, I assume what may help political protests is to share awareness and truth about what the people really want and how they are fighting for their rights. I do not know whether this is useful in the short term, but I am sure this awareness will be helpful for the next generations. There are lessons in what people are experiencing in Iran for historians, sociologists, political activists and humanitarians. What music they That's all for now. It's been over six weeks since the protests initially started and the situation in Iran is still volatile, with things evolving at a rapidly changing pace. A terror attack took place in the city of Shiraz only a few days ago. Although this was claimed by the Islamic State, there is still the idea floating in the air, understandably so, that this was a false flag type operation orchestrated by the Iranian government in order to crack down on protesters and to impose a new series of repressive measures. We've included several links in the description below if you want to find out more about how these protests look on the ground, as well as the various ways in which people have expressed their solidarity and protested in the diaspora. We'd like to thank all of the people who helped us to make this episode possible, many of who, understandably so, wanted to remain anonymous. In particular, we'd like to thank Pedram Tagavi, who made the fantastic artwork for this episode. You can find a link to his Instagram account and more of his art in the description below. For the intro and outro music, we've used one of the anonymous songs that became an unofficial anthem of sorts to the protests, Bename Dohtarane Zarzamine Aftab, in the name of the Daughters of the Land of the Sun. And for the various sound clips and sound bites, we've used compositions from Kevin McLeod's Incompetech website as usual. Until next time. Take care and stay safe. 
زان زندگی آزادی جن جان آزادی Oh, oh, oh. 